Peachtree Christian Church. Today's scripture comes from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ has died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister, or you? Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each of us will be accountable to God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. My friends, it's a delight to be with you in worship on this fine Sunday morning. How are you this morning? Did everybody find the sanctuary okay without the elevator? Did anybody's Fitbit go off a little extra high this morning? Yes, our intern, hers went off in service, so <laughs> it caught up to her. Well, my friends, it is a delight to be with you and it's a delight to pray together. So I'm gonna ask you all to close your eyes and get in a posture that's comfortable we need the time of reflection. We need to clear our minds and our hearts that we may receive the word of God freshly this morning. So just begin to breathe. And as you begin to breathe, as you exhale, let stress, let anxiety go. And for those of you who need a little extra breather from the steps, this is the time. Breathe in. Breathe out. Gently take in your air and in gratitude, breathe out. Breathe in. This time, exhale all the air from your lungs. Breathe in the breath of God. God, I confess to you today in front of my friends that without you, I can do nothing. So we pray that your spirit fall upon this place and anywhere that my voice may be heard, that something true of your gospel love would 
illuminate each and every one of our hearts and minds. That even though this sermon was planned in months in advance and worked on this week, Lord knows it can come up short. And so we pray that your spirit translate and use it to transfigure. Give us freshness from the teaching of your word and let us all walk in strength together because of its light for your path paved for us by your son Christ, our savior and God's people together say, amen. When I was younger, I was in church doing a fundraiser in a fellowship hall we were making arts and crafts. I think we were making Christmas wreaths for sale. People had glue guns out and pipe cleaners. I don't know. They had stuff that you would find at a hobby shop, just strewn about along tables everywhere. At some point, you could hear two of the volunteers, two of the lead volunteers. Now, to this day, I'm not certain if they were asked to lead by anybody, but I think they chose that they were the leaders. You ever meet people who just decided for themselves that they're going to lead something? Well, both of them decided that and didn't talk to one another beforehand. And as they began to talk, they started getting into a bit of a spat. Everyone put down their glue guns and moved the reeds aside and turned their eyes over to these two who were now facing off. They were arguing. They both claim that they had the best and most efficient way to make these reeds that we may sell them for a fundraiser for the church. One person thought you, you could line up all the reeds in a row and do something of an assembly line. The other person said that was the dumbest idea ever. Certainly you need two lines of reeds. And I, I, to this day, I don't even remember the difference in their point of view. I just remember they got into it and they began to look to people around them and kind of create some factionalism by saying, come on, you understand what I mean? That's silly. This is the smarter way to go and so on and so forth until they both got so angry. It was just awkward. Tempers flared, faces red, voices raised, things said until one of the people did what my friend calls taking your toys and going home. They collected up all of their supplies, all their crafting supplies, gathered them up and said, I'm going home. I don't need this anyway. I was doing this out of the kindness of my heart. And then they stormed out the church. And what's worse, they took themselves away from the community from that time onward. Oh, it wasn't just a fight. This split up people in our community. Opinions, beliefs, convictions, tricky things. That same church was the church I grew up in. And most of the people came from a similar area of Appalachia. They were all extended family, and somehow they migrated as a family through generations up north to my hometown, and they had this little church on the edge of the city. And I guess it's because of my mom's relation to some of these folks, that's where she decided to take us to church one day, and then we kept going. No one ever told me how the church got there. I just assumed that the church found itself on the edge of the city from time immemorial. That's just where the church was. 
I didn't ever conceive of the notion that the church was planned to be put there or for any reason that it existed in that location. Now, we had a pastor who, to me, was on the Mount Rushmore of the faithful. You got Moses and Jesus and Paul, and there's my pastor. He was there for 30-plus years, and he was a person I looked up to very much like a faith hero of mine. And he loved me, and he cared for me, and he continued his ministry right up until retirement in that church. And then he went away for five years to another church across town. After the five years was up, he came back to our congregation because that's where he wanted to worship until he went to go home to be with the Lord, as they put it. And so I sat with him one night when he came back, one of our fellowship suppers on Sunday night, and I think it was time for my um, third piece of coconut cream pie. And I asked them things about the church. You see, at this point, I was thinking about ministry. It never occurred to me that he ever had difficulty with people's opinions in the church. It seemed to me that he was so holy and so right that no matter what idea he came up with or what new initiative he tried to do, people were just on board. Why wouldn't you be on board with Brother Wallace, I thought. That's what we called him, Brother Wallace. And then he goes, oh, no, son. He goes, you should have seen all the things I tried to get done here. And then he began to tell me the truth about church opinions, convictions, difficult things. And then he said, have you ever heard about how our church came to be? And I said, no. Well, he said that our church was once a part of another church in town, a sister church, and that our church started because of a church split. You never want your church to start because of a church split. You want this idea that it was born out of love and harmony, but not discord and disunity, yet my church that I grew up in was born out of discord and disunity. What happened, I asked him. He said, well, you see, we were the young people back then. I said, you were? So we were the young people, and we wanted to do a different style of music. We wanted to do the new music in church. Now, I got to tell you, the church I grew up in, we sang songs like, There's Power in the Blood, I'll Fly Away, This is the Day that the Lord Has Made. If you know those songs, they're in our hymnal. The dates of those songs, they're not new songs especially the way we did them, which was uh, Mountain Spirit. We did them bluegrass, very country in style. That was what they were calling the new music back then. And they wanted to break off to do their own music. Oh my, church opinions, convictions, difficult things. Years later, the church I grew up in died. Shrunk on the vine until it died because, and I'm convinced of this now, they were very comfortable hanging on to doing church the way they wanted to do it and keeping their old new hymns. And they ignored maybe thinking about new styles of music or new ways of engaging the world with the gospel such that they became irrelevant to a world that was looking for something that spoke to them. The thing of it is, is wherever there are opinions, communities have a difficult time 
And it's easy to slip into divisive tenors and divisive modes. That's what Paul's addressing here, the church at Rome, here in this letter. We've talked before about how the church was once made up of Jewish Christians. The very first Christians were Jews. Jesus was Jewish. It's important for us to always be mindful of that fact. Christianity was a Jewish movement. But in Rome, there was a point in time when a lot of people who were Jewish were expelled. And now that church, that same church, became populated by Gentile people. This is non-Jewish people. You could be Greek and be called a Gentile. So these people were non-Jewish Christians. And now, at another point in time, the Jewish Christians were able to come back into the fold. And what you have is a mashup of cultures. Unified because of the one saving blood of Jesus Christ. Unified because the one message of God revealed in Jesus invited all people to come to the divine table and have divine connection. Unique and dissimilar because of culture and history and history of God's revelation to the people. You see, if you were a Hebrew person from time immemorial, you marked out your distinction as being one of the people of God, maybe by your dietary habits or by the way you practiced your work week or your day of worship. There was all kinds of ways, we often call them laws, but all kinds of customs and covenantal boundaries and procedures that the Old Testament people of God practiced that now Gentile people had to come to terms with. So the question in the first century was often this, okay, guys, we got a lot of people coming to follow Jesus um, and they're coming from all over. They're coming from Greece, they're, they're coming from Rome, they're coming from all over the place. Do they need to become Jewish first? And a lot of the New Testament letters address things like that. Do they need to get circumcised if they weren't circumcised? What do we think about the food customs? Should they avoid certain foods? It's a tough thing. Yet, that's the world that Paul is writing into. In the situation he talks to this church, he says, there are some of you who are amongst the stronger. You need to make room for the weaker. What's he talking about here in particular? Well, you could see how in this worldview context that um, a person who really wanted to eat purely and eat purely the way God wanted them to eat, they might avoid eating meat altogether. Because in a Gentile market space, the, the pig or the fish or the beef or the goat you consume, when it was slaughtered, it might have been offered to an idol, to another god, and then you might have purchased it and then brought it home to eat. And you might just want to avoid eating meat altogether so you don't accidentally eat meat that really belongs to another god. Thereby, you don't want to be in worship of another god or in devotion to another god. But for Paul, it's the stronger brother in the metaphor that realizes that they can eat meat even if it was offered to an idol because the idol itself is not real. And because the thing about a Christian is a Christian lives to themselves, does not live to themselves, pardon me, a Christian lives to Christ and dies unto Christ. Christ is the end goal for the Christian, not any other idol, not any other God, not any other national, national allegiance, not other peoplehood, not even their own ego self, but rather it is Christ 
that the Christian lives for and dies for. And so if you eat meat that was offered to a non-existent deity, or maybe a deity that is much below your God revealed in Jesus, it's not going to hurt you. Yet there are perhaps the weaker ones, the ones who are afraid of that. You might see it as superstitious, or you might see it as just a a really strong conviction to, to be pure, to not ever step across the boundary mark, to never question, to live in such ways that you would never question your devotion to God or anybody else wouldn't judge you and your conviction to God too. Same thing could be said of the holy days. Christians worshiped on Sunday because Jesus was raised on Sunday, but it was Hebrew practice to have the Sabbath on Saturday. Maybe for Paul, the stronger brother realizes it's not the day that matters. It's that you, in fact, worship and have rest. So that the stronger in the community is meant to welcome the weaker in the community. This is hard. I don't care if it's the first century in Rome or if it's in our own century in our own century here in a sanctuary in Atlanta, Georgia. Because communities tend to work towards the lowest common denominator, prioritizing the weakest. I don't know if you're familiar with the actress Jessica Biel, but I once heard about something about her. She was a, a beautiful actress. I think she started maturing physically younger than other people in her demographic. She said that she went to church when she was younger. She went to this youth group, and at some point in time, unbeknownst to her, her body became a stumbling block. That, her words, not mine. And she had said that she kept getting called out by the youth minister and the lay, leity, the lay leadership and the staff that, that, that she was a stumbling block for, for weaker people who might look at her and lust. I don't know if you've ever spoke in that kind of way before. I know I have. In fact, I was a youth minister for a lot of years. And I always thought it was really interesting that whenever we went on a youth trip, like to a church camp, there was always like a strict set of guidelines for, for women's dress code, code, but a very small one for boys' dress code. Mostly the boys weren't allowed to wear like Satan-worshipping t-shirts. I've never seen a Satan-worshipping t-shirt, but nevertheless, we weren't supposed to wear them. Now, the girls had all these things. I remember reading one that said that the girls could wear um, a strapless shirt that was that thick, but if it were this thick, it was against the rules. That's parsing it out pretty narrowly for me, I have to say. But what I've learned over the years that boggles the mind is that we tend to just go right down to that lowest common denominator. We never think about the health of the whole community when we think in such terms. So I never heard people say, dress in such a way so as to not make your brother stumble. I never heard it followed up. And young man, grow up. Young man, learn to look at women in a non-lustful way. It's on you what you think about. I never heard that in church. What I do know is that Jessica Beale doesn't go to church and hasn't since. She found out that her personhood felt like a stumbling block to others. 
Paul is writing about a deep truth, an etiquette, I mean, an ethic of the kingdom of God, of the polity of God. It's that we can have customs and we can have policies, we can even have suggestions, but at the base of all of it, at the base of the church really ought to be something stronger that buttresses everything up, and that is a spirit of non-judgmentalness. Non-judgmentalness. It's easy to become judgmental about what foods people consume. You might be somebody who looks at somebody who eats food that wasn't sourced ethically and might be judgmental. You might look at people and say, well, they drink alcohol. And I think that's a stumbling block for some. So maybe they're wrong for drinking. I don't know. There's a lot of ways. There's ways in which days can become argued over as being stumbling blocks. Certain denominations were invented to, 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 to have a day that is kept holy. Even our days, even in our 21st century workaday world that doesn't really care about the Sabbath, even us, even us today can argue over the importance of certain days. Now, I remember being here for about three months here in Atlanta, Georgia, transplanted from Bloomington, Illinois, and I left service on a day like this, drove north on Peachtree. I was dog hungry, dog hungry. I pulled into that Chick-fil-A, they tore down their building. This huge Chick-fil-A up here. And I, I go, oh, the luckiest of days. There's not a line. It's never been the case that I've been at Chick-fil-A and there's never been a line. I pull all the way around and I'm ashamed to tell you right now how many times I said, hello, hello, before I realized it was Sunday and they keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, I'm not knocking Chick-fil-A because it's just, what would Paul say? Live unto the Lord, die unto the Lord. If, if you need to keep a day, keep a day. Does it matter what day? Maybe not. Maybe it just matters that you have time in your heart for worship for God. Okay. The principle that we're talking about of non-judgmentalness in light of what Paul ultimately calls disputable matters, matters of opinion, matters not discussed in Scripture. It's been applied to everything. That's what makes this even more complicated. This principle has been applied to the way we think about and talk about human sexuality, homosexuality. It's been applied to how we talk about uh, divorce and remarriage. It's even been applied to how we talk about uh, finding spiritual wisdom and reading the Buddha if you're a Christian. It's been applied to so many things. And as the church goes, the way we negotiate how we look and think about one another and what they're doing makes all the difference. If we remember it's our job to live unto the Lord and die unto the Lord, we're not going to have tons of time to worry about how other people are choosing to live unto the Lord and die unto the Lord. When the church gets it wrong, it, it gets it really wrong. In that little church I grew up in, I remember walking around the choir room and I found a petition. And it was at the height of this thing called the Satanic Panic. I don't know if you remember the Satanic Panic of the 80s, but the Satanic Panic was this kind of, it, went, it was a news story that went viral before the internet. 
that said that there is underground groups of Satan worshipers all across the United States, especially in daycares. There, there wasn't. That's the thing about it. I'm here to tell you the truth. There, there wasn't. This was bad story rolling down a hill like a snowball. I saw this sheet and it said, a parents against Dungeons and Dragons. I get Dungeons and Dragons banned. I don't know banned from what. I didn't know that we could ban stuff from, from Barnes and Noble. But, but, but get it banned because this is a board game that everyone just happened to know that the kid who played Dungeons and Dragons on the street was also practicing satanic acts of worship and sacrifice. I never heard of Dungeons and Dragons at that point, but boy, I wanted to know about it then. I had to meet me one of these Dungeons and Dragons people. Actually, I did know one. He was in my youth group. He's not a Christian today. It wasn't much after that. This is a board game. It's a board game. We're so worried about how other people are living to Christ and dying to Christ that we didn't even, we didn't even see the truth. We just allowed the fear to climb in and shroud our eyes. It's really easy to drive a wedge between people and God because of our judgment. I've told you a story before, I'm gonna tell you again. It's about this guy named Abba Moses or Moses the Black. He was what we call one of the desert fathers in the ancient church. He lived in a monastic community in Egypt. And a lot of the other brothers came to him and said, Moses, we, we, this guy, he sinned. We need you to come and help, like basically listen and give him a little trial. He's going, to be, he's going to be in big trouble because of his sin. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. He still didn't want to do it. But now he knew they wouldn't relent, so he did it. He went. But this time, he took with him, some stories have it, a basket full of sand. Others have a, a barrel of water. Let's, let's call it a basket of sand. The thing about the basket is it had a hole in it. And as he threw some sand in the hole, he carried it over his shoulder. And as he walked... All the sand fell out bit by bit right out behind him in the basket. It was a rather confusing, confusing action that he did, a side act, a very confusing side act. And he showed up to the trial and they said, oh, Brother Moses, Abba Moses, what's the meaning of the sand? He goes, all my sins, like the grains of sand, fall behind me and I do not see them. Yet you're asking me to come and judge this man. I don't know that I know all the answers on how to be a faithful parent in a world where you are trying to give your kids boundaries and you're trying to raise them so that they will live unto the Lord and die unto the Lord. But I think my mom did a pretty good job. And that little church that I went to growing up, I remember it wasn't spoken about in hushed tones. It was actually in our face. We were the weird family. We were the family that didn't go to Christian private school. We went to public school. And my mom was told if we didn't get me into school, I might find my way on the highway to hell. And then when people weren't allowed to watch certain TV programs like The Simpsons or something like that, and I, and I was allowed to watch certain movies or TV that other kids weren't watching that was just on network TV. Well, we were the ones on the path to destruction. And my mom, she, she just didn't think 
Much of it was too big of a deal. She took time to talk with us about what we saw, about what we heard at school, about our experiences. And, you know, everyone's different. But let me tell you this. Not one of those kids I grew up with is a Christian today. Not one. But my mom tried to raise me to live unto the Lord and die unto the Lord and not judge the others. I can say that, that we felt the judgment. Instead, she taught me how to look at the world, look at movies, TV show, board games, other people with a new way of seeing. That's a lens of grace. With a, a Christian worldview pierce through maybe what's good and what's not worth keeping hold on to. Well, I'm just thankful that my mom taught me the little dictum that I live by. In the kingdom of non-judgmentalness, it's about relationships before rules. It's about people before policies. It's about living to the Lord and dying to the Lord and letting Jesus sort everything else out.